This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. Thank, thank you so much for coming on a Friday night. My name is Dale Soden. I'm a professor of history and the director of the Weyerhaeuser Center for Christian Faith and Learning here at Whitworth. And it's my pleasure to uh, sponsor this uh, lecture this evening and uh, also introduce uh, my good friend Jim uh, Wellman. Before I forget, though, I know a number of you are uh, here under the umbrella of uh, Core 150, 250, and 350, and uh, that's great. I have sign-in sheets down here at the front if you need to sign in for uh, extra credit, which is, uh, which is uh, great. So make sure you take advantage of that. Uh, Jim Wellman grew up in uh, Bellevue, Washington, and the reason I know this uh, is that I played basketball with his older brother in high school. Um, so so uh, I've sort of known about Jim for a long, long uh, time. Uh, but uh, skipping forward, uh, he received his bachelor's degree from the University of Washington in English and then went on to earn a Master of Divinity at Princeton Theological Seminary in Practical Theology. And he later earned his Ph.D. in religion at the University of Chicago under the legendary uh, Martin Marty. Or if you have uh, Jerry Sitzer in class, uh, Martin Marty was a professor, was the lead professor for Jerry Sitzer. He has taught at the University of Washington since 2002 and is currently a professor of comparative religion at the University of, of Washington. He is uh, a prolific author. Uh, he has written and published in a wide range of scholarly journals, religion and culture, uh, the mainline church, we'll see tonight, religion and, and violence, but he has had a wide range of, of uh, scholarly interests, and he speaks widely around the country on a variety of topics. He is the author and, and or co-author of six books with a seventh one under contract. These include Gold Coast Church and the Ghetto, Christ and the Culture in Mainline Presbyterianism. He published that in 1999. Uh, Belief and Bloodshed, Religion and Violence Across Time and Tradition in 2007, of which I'm sure he'll refer to in part this evening. Uh, a book um, that has been widely read in the Northwest, Evangelicals versus Liberals, The Clash of Christian Cultures in the Pacific Northwest in 2008. Uh, he has written um, a book on Rob Bell and a New American Christianity in uh, 2012. And his current uh, work, a co-authored book, High on God, How the Megachurch Conquered America. Uh, I have known Jim professionally for a number of years. Uh, we participated in a project called The Nun Zone, uh, religion and Public Policy in the Pacific Northwest, where we were, uh, we each wrote different chapters, and we've been on a, a number of panels throughout our years uh, together. But tonight, Jim returns to the subject of religion and violence, as you can tell from the, the title of tonight's lecture, A New Theory from Abraham to Trump. And so it gives me great pleasure uh, to introduce, please join me in welcoming uh, Jim Wellman. Thank you, Stan. <clears throat> I can't believe you're here. It's Friday night. <laughs> if this was the University of Washington, no one would come. 
So uh, this, this is an amazing. So uh, I'm thankful for you to be here. Uh, I, let's see, how should I start this? I didn't think I would study religious violence until 2001, 9-11. Uh, so, uh, and, the, and the fact that, uh, that religion and violence are so deeply intertwined now is something that's really new. Uh, in a certain sense, into the American uh, audience. So t- tonight, I'll give you kind of the gist of what I've learned about religion and violence. And uh, it'll be kind of dense in a, in a certain way, but I, I think, um, I feel like uh, I've kind of come to the core of what's going on. So I want to test you and see what you guys think of, of this theory. And uh, then we'll go from there. Does that sound good? Uh, So, yeah, many of us wonder, how can religion cause violence, right? How can religion cause violence? I don't think anyone becomes religious because they want to be violent. Uh, I think most of us are religious because we found some sort of sense of peace and abundant life. Uh, so it's a, it's a weird thing. So it's a question that I've been struggling with since 9-11, as I said, and it's popular today uh, to blame Islam for religious violence. And I'll show you why that's really wrong. Uh, and I put Trump in, because <laughs> it was such a shock that he's our president, but I put Trump in because of his... Uh, his administration's interest in saying Islamic uh, terrorism, right? To basically say that Islam is the source of terrorism today. And I'm going to make the claim uh, through this argument that he's wrong about that. He's wrong about that, and in fact, I think he, he does a great disservice to, uh, to Islam and to us. So we'll go from there. So it'll be a little bit provocative and uh, get you to think. So I started in, in 2004, article with Kyoko Tokono, is religious violence inevitable? Um, and we more or less said, it seems to be the fact that empirically, it's true. Even Buddhism can be violent, right? Most of us as Americans think of Buddhism as the ideal religion because you don't have to believe much and uh, you don't have to do anything and uh, they're always peaceful. Uh, But the truth is there are monks who have been warriors uh, who are Buddhists. And so, uh, and Kyoko Tokuno wrote the article in part because of, uh, of that belief that Buddhism also has a violent side. In 2007, religion and violence, past and present and future and belief in bloodshed basically kind of a theory of, of, of religious violence. And then in 2012, a, a book on religion and human security, a global perspective. We're still working on religion and international studies, uh, trying to understand. We're trying to convince, convince the State Department to take religion seriously when they do diplomacy in the international realm. Um, and you should know that our diplomats are not trained in religion whatsoever, right? Think about that. 
Religion as, and, and I, I would really claim this empirically, religion is everywhere in the world. Our diplomats know next to nothing about religion. Does that make any sense to you? No, you, come on. <laughs> right? It's ridiculous. Uh, but it's a, it's a real problem, and, and that's something we're trying to address. Uh, so, so there you go. That's kind of, you can see I have a strong feeling about this. Uh, so the outline of the talk, the power of religion in a global context, a theory of religion, violence, and leadership, the inevitable relationship of religion and the state. Most of us are not religious because, uh, well, in fact, we are repulsed by state religion. Religion always wants to have a relationship with the state. Okay? So we both are repulsed by state religion, and religious folks always want a relationship to the state. Interesting, huh? So, so we think, think, we'll think about that together. So, in, religious, in international studies, I teach in an international studies school, uh, the Jackson School of International Studies. And the prominent feeling among those who do international studies is that religion is a dependent variable. That is, religion never causes anything, right? Now, that's been <laughs> deeply challenged over the last 10 to 20 years. And, 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 it's, and it's funny because I'm the chair of the Competitive Religion Program in the Jackson School of International Studies. I've suddenly become very popular because people, my colleagues, realize religion is really important. It's really important to understand the globe. You know, it's a very complicated situation there, but I'll, I won't go into it. Um, religion fills a need, thus functional, something. And in, when you say that religion is a dependent variable, basically you would say religion fills a need, but all sorts of things can fill that need. Religion is not necessary. Okay? You with me? That's, that, that's what is claimed when you say that religion is a dependent variable. And the prediction is religion is disappearing and will decline. It's the classic secularization theory, right? People given enough food, given enough meaning, religion will decline and disappear, all right? Much like England or, or Europe. Religion, and the second claim is religion is ignorance or superstition. It should disappear because it's ridiculous, okay? So those are the common uh, sensibilities among many of the intelligentsia of the global community. So I come along and say, no, I think you're wrong. You're just plain wrong. And these are, these are definitions of, of religion that I've used. And I'm not going to go through this in, in great depth. It's just about beliefs, practices, rituals communal living, uh, institutional, legitimated, uh, it, it negotiates and interacts with powers and forces uh, that are beyond the self and group, uh, so forth and so on. But this is an uh, early definition that I came up with, and this is the second. And I think it's the better definition. Religion is the most sustainable institution in the world. Here's why. Uh, religion is a socially enacted desire for the ultimate. 
usually for gods or spirits. It's socially constructed. The desires are in the body before they're expressed in the mind. They are sustainable and enduring. Okay? Think about your own religious experience. Most of us are probably religious in this audience. Well, yeah, let's raise our hands. Who's religious? Raise your hand. All right. Yeah, you guys are all religious. Now, so I would argue that you got your religion by feeling something before you thought about it. So think about that now. When did you first begin to feel that religion was important? And where were you? What was the experience like? All right? Most of us begin to feel like there's something there. And then we begin to articulate what that thing is. And it's mostly about gods or spirits. Now, we begin to learn about those gods or spirits, mostly in our families, in our communities. So it's socially constructed, right? Most of us in this room are are Christian, probably Protestant, right? We're probably raised in that milieu, your family, your community, right? If this were Pakistan, most of us would be what religion? What? Muslim, yes, 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 all right, right? When you're young, do you, can you articulate what Muslims believe or Christians believe? No, do you see your parents going to church? They pray around the, the, uh, the breakfast table or the dinner table. You begin to feel, oh, there's something here, right? We hold hands and we say, God bless you. We, we touch each other for baptism. We feel something. It's very powerful. This is, I'm religious. I'm a Christian. Very powerful. Amazing religion. Desires are in the body. Desires for what? Closeness, meaning, a sense of community, healing, beauty, truth. Finally, I'm free. God loves me. I can do anything. Right? That feels good, doesn't it? Are you with me? Come on. Let's have a little revival. (laughs) Touch each other. Bless each other, okay? Bless each other. God bless you. Oh my gosh, that feels so good. Come on, religion is good stuff. It's sustainable and enduring, right? Some of you have been with somebody who's dying. You touch their hand, right? You say, you reach down and you say, peace be with you. God is with you. How many people have done that? Raise your hand. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Something we say in the Christian tradition, peace passes all understanding. Right? It's emotional then we understand it, right? So it's a very, this is very powerful stuff. Okay, so <laughs> this is a little funny. Come on, laugh a little bit. Religion, <laughs> I came up with this, it's kind of funny. 
Religion, uh, you tell your friends this. What'd you learn last night, man, in the lecture? For extra credit? Wow. Religion is the most sustainable institution in the world besides prostitution and gun making. There's, I think there's some truth to that. Jared Diamond's book on this it kind of more or less makes that claim. Religion uh, creates its own center of power. All right? So it's not just this feeling inside. It's the community, right? Right? As some of you, has, has anybody been in a room where everybody's singing the same song and it's very powerful and you feel it together? I got, I got nodding going on here, man. And you just, I've been there. I've been, I, I, okay, I, I was a, I've been a pastor off and on. Took kids on youth groups. We did work camps. Sometimes the singing made you feel like, oh my goodness, the Holy Spirit's right here, right next to me. Have you, like, you, I can see your faces are just going, yeah, yeah, man. It's awesome. So in the modern world, this same system of symbolic and social boundaries is institutionalized, right? We create institutions, Presbyterians. I'm a Presbyterian. Uh, amazing institutions. We, we kill the spirit <laughs> with our institutions sometimes. We bureaucratize the spirit, organize the spirit until you kill it. No, I, yeah, I guess I, maybe I shouldn't say that. Um, and, but uh, these, these religion, this has this kind of center of power, symbolic and social boundaries, institutionalized, often forming its own center, power and authority, a moral worldview, and the Protestant establishment, right? 60% of Americans are Protestant. Mid-century, mid-20th century, most American presidents were Protestant establishment figures. They ruled the United States in many ways. I've studied that stuff. So, What's the problem with religion? We're talking about religious violence, so what's the problem? This is the problem, and I, I, this, is, I think this is good, okay? You get, this is good. Write this down, you guys, students. This will get extra credit. Okay, two things, two things, two things. It's a source, a deep well of joy, purpose, and meaning from which sustainable actions follow, expressed in care, right? Religion is good. Religion is so beautiful. I, and, I, and I mean this, down, down deep into my heart. Care, nurture, reproduction of the group. I wanted my two daughters to be Christians. I was their youth leader to, just to make sure they got the right theology and they had a good time. Uh, and, and they came out Christian, right? It's good. I like it. I like it. It's good. I like it. And, okay, so what's the problem? Here's the problem. Here's the problem. Certainty uh, and, and religion becomes problematic when it is too certain of its own truth claims. You okay with me? And what happens when that happens? We've seen a lot of this. It creates moral binaries. Some are good and some are evil, right? And then you get this domination subordination. You get the sense that certain genders are important to God and others are less important, right? So subordination, domination. Uh, 
forms of higher authority, clergy, those who are the most religious, suddenly take on a, a, an aura of authority and, and become dominant. And then, this is, a, this is really par- powerful. You get what is called the teleological suspension of the ethical. Has anybody read that? Anybody know that phrase? You get so much extra credit if you know this. Where does that come from? Who does it come from? Who? Come on, come on. Any professors now? Pardon me? Ah, yay, give me a hand. Dale Soden, extra credit. Zorn Kierkegaard, the, the uh, famous theologian of the 19th century, examined Abraham when he goes up to the mountain, right? Remember this? Who does he take up to the mountain? Who? And what does God ask him to do? Now, come on, say that loud and clear. Okay, come on, is that weird or what? Is it, are you, what, come on. God is ask, asking Abraham to sacrifice his son. What is going on there? That, what Kierkegaard called that is the teleological suspension of the ethical. It is not ethical to kill your son. Okay? Ethics mean that you take others as seriously as you take yourself. It's the teleological suspension of the ethical. And then what happens? What happens, my friend? What happens next? What happens next? An animal. Okay, what, what did... What did God say? Like, surprise. <laughs> what, what happened there? Well, like, what? That is bizarre. Do you think Abraham said, what? Anyway, okay. I think it was pretty bizarre. Um, now, this is really powerful. This is, this is very powerful because most Near Eastern, or all Near Eastern religions practiced, practiced uh, human sacrifice. And, and really... You could argue that human sacrifice may still be being practiced in certain religious groups. And so the fact, this, okay, this is, this is I, I think it's one of the most, it, it's one of the reasons I am a Christian. Is because out of the Jewish tradition, Abraham said, no more sacrifice. No more we will take all human beings as made in God's image. None should be sacrificed. And this gets big, right? What do the Jews say? The apple of God's eye are who? The orphans, the widows, the stranger, the refugee, the immigrant, the gay man or woman. The apple of God's eye are the least, the lost, and the last. Is this, is this a revolution in human civilization? What do you think? It is. It came out of the Hebrew Christian tradition. It's a big deal. This is a big deal. 
the Greeks and the Romans practiced forms of basically sacrificing women, uh, uh, infants, whoever was uh, thought to be useless, they just simply got rid of. So this is a big deal. Now, the problem is that religion sometimes still does it. And that's the problem. So here we have Jessica Stern's good book, Terror in the Name of God. Writing this book, she interviewed many, many uh, so-called terrorists. Writing this book has helped me to understand that religion is a kind of technology. It is terribly seductive in its ability to soothe and explain, but it is also dangerous. Converts such as the one I visited as a child, a Christian saint, make good people better, but they don't necessarily make bad people good. They might even make bad people worse, which is, I think, a very interesting religion in the hands of the wrong people gets violent. And they become, uh, they use moral binaries. They begin to, to name certain people as evil and certain people as good. And then they come into power, especially state power, and they do great damage. Okay, you with me? That's the essence of the argument. Okay, where are the sources of religion's power? Uh, where are the sources of religion's power? Uh, affective events and experience, that is, you are religious probably because you had an experience in a group setting where you felt something very powerful, all right? You were healed, you felt like you got deep insight, something happened to you, you felt loved more than you've ever felt before, I've had mystical experiences. How many of you have had mystical experiences? Raise your hands. Look around. Keep your hands up. Hi. Hi. Okay. Just about 40 to 50% of all Americans in one way or another have had a mystical experience. That is an affective event, an experience that they could not explain otherwise. Plausible, though non-verifiable truth claims and rewards. This is interesting, and this is why my secular friends at the UWs wonder why are religious people religious? They can't prove any of this stuff, right? Do you, do you guys know atheists? Oh, get, hey, do we have atheists in the crowd? Any proud atheists? Wow, good job, Dale. <laughs> you don't let it, you don't let the atheists in. Maybe Jason doesn't either. Um, Sociologists are more, they're mostly atheists, aren't they? Like 80%. Um, that's interesting. Okay, so you can't prove the stuff. You can't prove, that's one of the problems with the religion. That's why your buddies who are atheist or, or uh, secular kind of go, what you guys, what are you guys, you guys are just into fantasy. All right? Okay, affective events are, are like what I would say the internal combustion en engine of re religion, powerful re uh, affective events, experiences and practices of religion, embody and ritual action, mystical experience formulated through systems of belief and story, endless fuel. Religion has endless fuel. Uh, they, uh, religion off offers plausible though non-verifiable truth claims and rewards, Right? This gives people confidence. Uh, leadership nurtures confidence spiced with this worldly and otherworldly rewards, right? And a very effective, I've met a lot of them, a very effective uh, religious leader 
knows how to uh, drop in little rewards uh, during his, his or her um, uh, you know, sermons. And, and your ears perk up and they go, oh yeah, okay. It's coming. The good stuff is coming. Okay, what is the source of religious conflict and violence? Uh, okay, here we go. This, and this is complicated, but I think you can do it. Religions are extraordinarily flex, flexible and plastic. They are what's called isomorphic. They shadow dance with social systems. Religion, in, in a certain way, is always changing because it knows it has to appeal to populations and power structures. All right? So religions dances with power. Uh, partners with power, becomes the power, resists the power, right? We're seeing this today. Jason uh, Volschlager was telling us about this trip that he took to a black church uh, in South Carolina, right? In, in Alabama. And, and there was, it, it was all African-Americans in the church, five or six pastors preaching and basically telling the congregation, it is your time to resist uh, the political system. We did it in the 60s. It is now your time to take up the, uh, the power to resist uh, the political system. So religion, if it can, it will partner with power. It will become the power, and sometimes it will resist the power. All right. What is the source of religious conflict and violence? Here, um, it's, it's really a complex mixture of religious worldview, cultural context, and religious leadership. Does anybody know Mark Driscoll, that name? Raise your hand. Did anybody go to his church? Wow. Okay. Oh, interesting. Okay. He was a very powerful pastor in uh, Seattle area. And got to have a church of about 10,000 uh, in Ballard. Became really one of the most popular preachers in uh, the last 20 years. And uh, how did he do it? He's a great example of this. He created a worldview. He became a relatively authoritarian leader. And he created a context of, of, of where people felt totally subordinate, and under his leadership. So, religious worldview that creates violence. Religious worldview uh, has symbolic resources that create a kind of total religious worldview. One of the things that happened in Driscoll's church is that women were told that they must be subordinate to their husbands. That Christ calls them to be subordinate. Now, you might say, what is that about? Uh, well, it became a very powerful mechanism uh, in which women who were highly professional, highly, highly uh, capable people, basically voluntarily subordinated themselves to their husbands. Now, you might say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, it didn't work well. It worked for a little bit, where Driscoll had them under his control, but in the end, many, many, many marriages uh, fell apart. 
so this religious worldview can be this worldly or otherworldly. Uh, it, cre- it creates a kind of transcendental demand uh, that uh, is, has a religious vision, that it's embodied politically and culturally. There was a way in which Driscoll had, had control of his congregation and, and, and really basically said, we are a vanguard that will transform the secular uh, satanic ways of the city of Seattle. And that really was his nostrum that he went about trying to do. Now, and well, okay. So here's, <laughs> here we go. Uh, violent leadership within religious groups is most often led by, this should ring a bell, young and aggressive male leadership that is educated with access to material resources and is usually a second level elite, okay? Now this goes for uh, Islamic groups that become violent as well, is they tend to be elites, but at the second level. They don't have all the power they really want. And so they often go into religious groups knowing that religious groups are often kind of plastic and they're able to be manipulated and they use them to gain power. So I often say, beware of young, powerful males who are second level elites. They want your subordination to their, to their, uh, to their leadership. Belief that they have become agents of the vision. Okay, if you ever look up, look up Mark Driscoll and watch him on video sometime. He really believed that the Spirit of God had come upon him and that he was going to be the agent of this vision. Belief that the cosmic visions rationalize a larger moral imperative and, and human initiative. It, they, they, here we go. Teleological suspension of the ethical. What happens? What happened to Driscoll? Why did he fall down? What, what happened? Stealing money. He paid uh, to get it on the bestsellers list for his book on marriage. All right? Basically a system of lying, manipulation, gaining power to press himself forward. And he basically suspended usual ethical and moral imperatives. Really uh, an excellent excellent example of religious leadership (laughs) in the negative sense. What is the source of religious conflict or power? Well, let me, let me just, I've been talking a lot. What do you, any, any quick questions or thoughts while, while I take a drink? Thoughts, comments? Want me to keep going? Yeah, go ahead. When, when, when marriages? Mark Driscoll's church. Um, what I would say is these, these religious leaders want to dominate and manipulate their followers. 
And so they would manipulate their marriages. And if you can manipulate the personal lives of your followers, then you can gain control. And when, when your followers are always thinking what the religious leader wants, you know that they are controlled by that religious leader. So that's, that's kind of what the argument is. Um, and uh, you see this again and again in, in authoritarian religious leaders. Is they, want, they want you to be thinking what they want all the time. Has anybody been around a very powerful, charismatic leader, religious? What and tell me what it's like. Yeah, what's it, what's it like? Tell, why? Tell me what happened, not just the feeling. Yeah. And it was horrifying because yeah, and it was scary, right? Because they were giving all their resources to him, right? Right. That's exactly what happens. Anybody else? Somebody else over here? Um, yeah. Go. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Pardon me? Yeah, so they manipulate money giving to the leader and the leader then promises them wealth in the process, right? So there's kind of this strange uh, interaction where you say, if you give me your money, you will become rich too. Which, that's, that's, that's quite a promise. Um, I should try to do that in my classes. Have you tried that, Dale? <laughs> Uh, so the cultural context that facilitates and shapes conflict, partnership between religious state and religion, suppression of alternative forms of religion, this would be the cultural context, the religion becomes the state religion. The religion becomes the political power of the state and then begins to manipulate the whole state in order to basically enrich itself. Um, and uh, so this, this is kind of a, 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 you know, a wider sense of what happens when religion becomes very destructive. All right, um, I'm going to skip this. I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to skip this. Skip this too. I'm going to get right to this because we're, I want to wind up a little bit. I want that, that kind of gives you the background or the, the, the compass of what happens when religion becomes violent, all right? Uh, and uh, 
many of us, and, and I, I want to kind of get change the subject a little bit, but I want, and I want to talk about Islam and, and kind of religion and international studies a little bit more here. And that is uh, some of us, and, and even our president now, is saying that, that Islam in itself is a source of terror and violence. Now, some of us may have come to believe that, right? Uh, and it's a really interesting question is, is, uh, is Islam in and of itself a violent religion? Right? And, you know, I, I wonder if, if we were really honest that some of us might say, yeah, it is. I think it, I think it is a problem. It is a problem. Right? Um, so I want to kind of, I want to, I want to, respond to that, uh, that query. One of the best books on this subject is a, a book called Dying to Win. It's by Robert Pape. He's a University of Chicago political scientist. Uh, and what he has done over the last 30 years is study every act of religious violence uh, and religious terror, so-called, over the last 30 years. And what he's trying to do, and, and especially in the Middle East, especially around the Iraq War. And what he was trying to do is, is figure out what was the cause of these suicidal terrorists, right? What are the cause? Why do they do? Why do they blow themselves up? Uh, and, and so that was the question. And what he, what he basically argued after, after studying uh, the biographies of every one of these suicide terrorists is this, that any policy that seeks to conquer the Muslim societies in order to deliberately transform them and their culture is folly, right? So we, and, and, and you might say, well, of course, he's a liberal political scientist. What, and we had him to the University of Washington and the truth is, he's actually a conservative. He's a Republican. Uh, so this wasn't some liberal uh, guy trying to prove his theory, right? This was actually a conservative concerned about the Republican Party, feeling that basically the Iraq War was one of the major errors in our foreign policy of the last 100 uh, years. And so what he has argued, and, and really, in a sense, tried to convince his conservative friends in the Republican Party, is that it is not that Islam is somehow more violent. It is that when Islam is, Islamic countries, that is, are invaded, that is exactly the time when uh, suicide bombings began to appear for the first time ever in Iraq. Okay, are you with me? Are you with me? In other words, it wasn't that Islam or Islam within the Iraq, uh, the nation of Iraq, was naturally somehow violent, is it was much more that the, the sense that the Americans were invading our country had to be responded to. 
because in a, in a real way uh, that the country was being blasphemed, right? And so the only response, because of the sense of powerlessness against the American troops, the only way to respond was to become a suicide terrorist. And so when you begin to study uh, these uh, experiences and these events of suicide terrorism, the same pattern comes up over and over and over again. Same pattern within Afghanistan, same patterns all over the Middle East. Wherever the West had began to push itself into the political sphere of these countries, suicide bombers would pop up, right? So am I in favor of suicide bombing? Of course not, all right? Do I think it's good that they do this? Of course not. But I think as Americans, and I, and I really, I think there's a sense in which we really know this in our guts now, that it was a mistake. That it was, it's one of the great mistakes of the, of the last uh, 50 or 100 years. And, okay, this is, uh, this, will, this will sound crazy. When, uh, when now President Trump began his campaign, what did he say? He said something very interesting about the Iraq war. What do you, does anybody remember? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. No, no, yeah, I think that's true, but that's something else. He said something else that was very um, anti what the conservative Republican Party had said before. What did he say? Does, do anybody remember this? He said, well, and I, gosh, you know, it's, it's, this is, I think it was found to be a lie, so what are you going to do? He said, I was against the Iraq war. Do you remember this? And everybody, and Republicans, conservatives, and I know they're my, some of them, my good friends are, are Republican conservatives, were aghast, right? But this, but the American public had a sense that, yeah, I think he's right. I think he's right. Now, it was found that in an interview, that he had kind of been for the Iraq war before he was against it. So I don't even know if he was telling the truth. But it got him uh, some tra uh, traction in the Republican Party. And within the Republican Party now, there's a sense in which they're turning, kind of turning their back on, on, on the Iraq war and, and what, was, what happened uh, in, in the Iraq war. So it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting thing that... that even Republicans have turned against it. And I think they, they've done that in part because they realize uh, what's going on. All right, so policy, public policy implications. Religious institutions are far more sustainable as human communities than state or market-oriented institutional forms. Okay, so what I would say is Americans have it right. What they say, what we say as Americans, is that religion should be separate from the state. What I would argue is that whenever religion becomes the state, 
it becomes violent. It becomes, it has a tendency to become violent. And so the separation of church and state, I think, is one of the first principles of a brilliant tradition within American and Anglo, kind of larger Anglo-Saxon world. Uh, so, so I would say keep religion away from power. Religion is a very good thing, but religion has a te- religion's temptation is to take power, and once it becomes the power, it tends to become violent. Are you with me? Okay. So when, uh, so I think one of the significant things that we can do as Americans is to make sure our government is staying out of the business of being a religious leader of the American culture and society. I, you know, I can't, you know, I, if you don't get anything else out of this lecture, get that. Uh, um, religion is very good, uh, you know, working as NGOs, human rights groups, um, and it's, it's really good at, at giving and delivering goods and services to, that, to others. But it's not good as a as a state um, as a state uh, religion. Well, so you know, one of the questions that a lot of us are struggling: How do you engage the Muslim world? There's no he uh, Juan Cole, who's an expert on the Middle East, said at, uh, this is about four years ago. There's no easy alternative to energy. It used to be that we were in the Middle East for oil, right? Now we don't have to be there for oil. And so stay away. Uh, But the question is, uh, the Middle East is not going anywhere, neither Muslims nor the United States. Most Muslims, and this is really powerful, and I think it's true when you talk to Muslims on the ground, most Muslims hate extremists, extremists of all types. uh, And most Muslims want democracy, and, and this is really important, They want democracy and freedom and Sharia, and they see no contradictions. When you do uh, policy, uh, when you ask Muslims on the ground, what do you want? This is what they want. They want democracy, they want freedom, and they want Sharia. Okay, you with me on that? Some of us think, no, they just want Sharia. No, they want democracy. They want choice, but they want their principles of Islamic uh, uh, law to, to be a part of how they see themselves in this world. All right, religion is here to stay for good and evil. Policymakers should take it more seriously. Don't us- underestimate it. Religion always wants more power. Be careful of how one mixes religion and the state. Religion can be beautiful and good and true. I've experienced it that way. But be careful of young male religious leaders that they are God's hammer, right? So that is, <laughs> that's, I hope that's your takeaway. Any questions, comments, thoughts? Great, great. great.